You're listening to the Kitchen Scene Investigator Podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Kitchen Scene Investigator, where I mine my experiences in food, wine, and hospitality to give you the language and ways of the pros. But before we start this week's episode, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Gracias, merci, to new listeners out there who have subscribed since the last episode. We welcome new listeners from Michigan to Montana, New York to Oregon, Idaho to North Dakota, Florida to Alabama. It's, it's, it's really exciting. And we also got new listeners from around the globe, from Australia, hello Australia, to Japan, um, Spain to Germany, France to Singapore, Denmark to, to Switzerland. It's, it's really exciting. I love creating this, uh, this podcast for you. So keep sharing the podcast. All right, on to this week's episode. Oh, the holidays. Don't you just love them? The idea of hosting your first holiday dinner. Oh my goodness, it's so exciting. And you don't have a damn clue what the hell you're doing, right? Oh, I know. I've been that girl too. Or are you a dinner superhero? You just happen to be wearing your cape backwards. Yeah, I've been that girl too. So whether you're a rookie or you're a holiday heavy hitter, this episode has something for you. I'm so excited to be talking about party planning for home hospitality with my very good friend, Dorothy Maris. She's a culinary magician or a chef whisperer, if you will, one of the brilliant minds behind Los Angeles Food and Wine Festival and Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival. We are going to be translating pro party planning speak for all you enthusiasts out there. She really give some great morsels of advice and information and has a surprise in store for you about the number one thing you should do when starting planning. We will end the episode with my favorite three questions. What are you drinking? What's making you happy in the culinary world? And what's your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? So if you're not driving listening to this, grab a pen and enjoy all of the advice and insights that Dorothy gives you. It's it's pretty amazing. I started off by asking Dorothy, how does one become a chef whisperer? Enjoy the show. Dorothy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with me today. I I feel that um, this is not only an honor, but just like my listeners, I'm probably going to learn that much more from you and this conversation today. And I saw you firsthand at LA Food and Wine, working your magic, and um, you were managing that event like a true pro. And I remember looking down at your business card and it said, Chef Whisperer, not only do I want to be you when I, when I grow up, but how did you get into the business and, and wind up being a Chef Whisperer? That sounds so, so Hollywood. It, thank you for having me on the show first, Nikki. Uh, chef Whispering is not something you can take in school. Uh, there's no course for it that I'm aware of. And it is a very broad spectrum of things that I do. So I learned how to Chef Whisper by doing many, many things in the hospitality industry. Uh, chefs are a special breed. They need to be handled and 
petted and oh, loved and sometimes scolded into submission. <laughs> and that's what I do. And what you saw at Los Angeles Food and Wine was me at the helm of the Starship Enterprise culinary style. And um, I was just, you know, making the flying monkeys go this way and that way and do what we need to get done in order for an event of that size and scope to take place and look seamless, which is what we're going to talk about today doing at home. Absolutely. Um, having all that knowledge in one place to make something happen seamless is from years of experience. And I was reading through your your bio and wow, you have had quite a journey. Take me back to the beginning. How did you get into this crazy business? Uh, I wanted to buy a car. I was 16. And I every day I walked to high school in Sacramento and I saw a yellow cougar in 19... And there was dinosaurs across the street. But um, I wanted that yellow car. And so... Of course, I was brought up working. Uh, if you want something, you work for it. So I decided, oh, I would go to work at a restaurant. That would be great fun. I was too young, so I lied. It was pre-computer age. And so I told them that I was 18. And I told them that I had worked at another chain, a member of their chain in the past. So they figured I'd know, you know, the menu and how to do things and the, so on which I didn't, but I learned really quick. And my first day in the restaurant business was Mother's Day. Yes, Mother's Day. Great time. Good choice. I uh, spent the day mostly apologizing. Um, I was burnt. I had blisters on my feet. I, you know, walked home, my little apron all crumbled up, and I was in tears by the time I got home. My mom looked at me and said, what happened to you? And I said, it was Mother's Day and all the people were there and they were ordering all the things. And um, and I said, I, I, I don't think I'm going to ever go back, never again. And she said, no, you took a job and you'll be responsible and you'll go back. Now go take a bath and you'll feel better. So I went and I took a bath and I got out of the bathtub and there was my crumpled up apron with my pockets that had money in them. I had not even looked at yet. So I started uncrumpling all of the sympathy tips, and um, there was $73 there. Really? Yep. First day. A lot of money in those days. And I thought, maybe I'll go back. And so for the last 40 years, I've been going back and back and back and back. And it's been nothing but a delight and fun and a lot of hard work and a lot of very touching, touching times with coworkers and guests and so forth. You get to be a part of people's lives for just that brief moment at a table uh, where you're helping them celebrate something. And, you know, it's very gratifying. It's been uh, 40, 45 years and I've spanned the front of the house, the back of the house, the line, management, director of operations, marketing, you name it, I've done it. It's I've done fast food, fine dining, slow food. <laughs> and now I do lots of food, 
with Los Angeles Food and Wine and Pebble Beach Food and Wine for the last 13 years. And having been a volunteer for LA Food and Wine the last six years, I've seen firsthand the magnitude of what you're working on. What I'm curious to know is, even though you're working on such a large scale, is is your priority the same? Does it come down to hospitality? Does it come down to service? It's all about service and hospitality, and that is the name of the game. Um, it, when you break it down to brass tacks, that's what you're doing. I have very important chefs, 125 usually at a time, of the best chefs in the country, and I have their careers in my hands for the time that they're spending with us. And it's make or break um, for them. They like to show well at these events. There's a lot of media present, uh, national media, even global media that attend our events. And so the chefs like to show well, and they're also competitive by nature. Uh, so making sure that they have absolutely everything that they need, want, wish, desire in front of them is what my team and I do. And also to be hospitable because a lot of these people are coming from outside the country or across the world. So they're coming into a blindly in a lot of cases, um, to a kitchen that they've never worked in with equipment that they may not be familiar with and product that isn't what they're used to. So it's very stressful for them. Sure. It sounds like the stakes are very high. They're exceedingly high. Um, the price points that we have on some of our dinners and events are very, very high. And so the guests that have bought, purchased those tickets have an expectation level. The chefs want to come in and do their absolute finest work. The sommeliers come in with the wines and do the pairings. I mean, there's a, literally hundreds of pieces to these uh, events. A lot and of moving parts. So many. And to make them all come together is similar to bringing together an orchestra from one, one clarinet player from Argentina and a flute player from here and there, and then giving them a downbeat. And it should sound right. You know, we should all be playing the same tune. And it, it is challenging, uh, but it's not impossible. And that's, that's what you need to get across to the person at home who's attempting to do a big event at their home for Christmas or, th or Thanksgiving or New Year's even, um, that it is challenging, but not impossible. And it sounds like how you approach your work now is this beautiful compilation of not only restaurant experience, but we were chatting a little bit about how you were raised and your amazing family and your mom, who was just the most incredible hostess. And to me, what I'm seeing is you're bringing pieces from your professional life and your personal life into focus to make these events happen. And for my listeners out there that are, you know, looking at their first Christmas or looking at their first Thanksgiving, which is unbelievably overwhelming, it, 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 it can really take you out but you really have to make it happen. So what I was hoping is, I was hoping to enter this conversation through your point of view of your professional experience and how you were raised with this, this family of hospitality and talk about how you see hospitality and what hospitality means to you. Hospitality is in its 
cleanest form. It is just a welcoming and making people feel comfortable and feeding them, which and nurturing them, uh, which is something very primal. Uh, I've watched people in, in my line of work for a number of years. And the first couple things you do as a human being are one, take a breath. And then two, your mama feeds you. And while she's feeding you, she's holding you, making you comfortable and making you feel safe and loved. That's hospitality. And, and it's rare, you know, all the way broken down into its brass tacks. So when you're inviting people to your home, uh, you should welcome them warmly and make them comfortable, whatever that means to you. It's not complicated. It really is not. Uh, and then of course we're going to feed them because that's what we do next. Make sure they're breathing. That's important too. <laughs> um, it sounds to me that you're taking into consideration your environment, right? So whatever this big event, whether it is Thanksgiving or Christmas, whatever this big event means that what I'm hearing from you is take into consideration your environment. Knowing your environment, I think is so empowering. And one thing that you mentioned when we were first talking was in that environment, know how your guests are going to move through the environment. I agree. Um, you know, the, the layout of your house, your kitchen, and the flow of the traffic through your home. Uh, if you're at entertaining at home, which we're assuming that's the case, know where people feel comfortable or where they want to be. Um, they want to be around you. They're there to see you. And so somehow you need to incorporate yourself into this equation. My mom, who was very good at entertaining, always told us that people like to feel useful. And so to include them, not say, oh, just sit down and I'll do everything. We can do that to a certain degree. However, you know, if somebody's good at something, let them chop something, let them whip the whipped cream, you know, have them bring something, you know, when, if it's rolls or dessert or something, they'll feel included and they'll feel wanted. And that's important too. Uh, but definitely in the environment that you have, if you have space for eight or 10 people at your dining room table comfortably, don't try to put 16 there. It's not going to work. It's just like a restaurant. You know, you don't want to be crammed in at a restaurant table with, you know, if you have 16 people and you're at a table for eight, nobody's going to feel good there. I love the idea of including other people in the process, because I imagine that when you're planning this big event, those first few moments, right? When the doorbell rings and you're like, oh, I'm not ready. And you just want one more swig of wine, you know, to calm you down. I love the idea of having a few tasks for people, even if they're unnecessary. Absolutely. And they can be completely unnecessary. Would you put these nuts in this bowl and just set it out on the table for me? I usually have my table set. That's, I'm very particular about having the table set because it, it sets a stage. And so when people arrive, the table set, I can't ask anybody to do that. So do you do that in advance? I do it usually the night before. The night before. Mm -hmm. Because I want to make sure I have all the serving pieces, all of the glassware, everything where it needs to be. And I'm not looking for that while I'm trying to engineer what's coming out of the kitchen. So am I hearing this correctly? Do you count 
your service wear and your plates and your linens. Like, so where do you start with that? Like, do you, from the beginning of the event, right? So do you have number of guests and the menu you're going to have? Like, how, how do you start to put all these pieces together? First, I don't look at the magazines. Okay. They have the beautiful bronze turkey on the front. Then they have like 10 pages of your hors d'oeuvres, your appetizers, what you're going to do, how many things, and the shopping list is there. Please stop that. Put it down. This is really a very simple meal, and you need to keep it simple to execute it well. And when you break it down to its parts, instead of being overwhelmed while looking at that big long list in the, in the magazine, it'll become a lot clearer to you. Uh, that this is something that could be done beautifully and simply. Don't, please don't do the magazine. I love that. I, what the audience ha- did not see while Dorothy was saying that is that I threw my, my arms up in the air because Madison Avenue has us convinced that we sh- we ought to, we ought to have this gorgeous bronze turkey and these perfect dishes. The reality is that the glossy magazines are paying a lot of money to a food stylist, to a chef, to an ingredient specialist, to a lighting specialist to create, um, to create a scene that actually does not exist. Norman Rockwell passed away a long time ago. (laughs) I actually had this conversation with the chef that I worked with that at the penthouse restaurant in Santa Monica, Mm -hmm. where I worked for more than 10 years. And I said to him, why don't you ever just put like family style turkeys in the middle of tables? Yes, I was very green when I was saying that. And he, his head like whipped to the side and he said, that's for magazines. I don't even cook my white meat and my dark meat together. Nope. And Dorothy, I, I felt like in that moment, I got permission to be a real cook. Absolutely. Think outside that whole turkey box right away. It's one of the faults that uh, been in restaurant business when we we're serving 400 people for Thanksgiving and the white meat and the dark meat is not cooked at the same time or at the same levels. Um, all of these pieces are done separately because that's how they're going to come out correctly. So yeah, it's a nice picture to have the bronze turkey, but we don't have a food stylist at home and the food stylist is not here to spray on the the color and the gloss and the hairspray that makes it all look good. You can't eat that magazine stuff. You just can't. When they're done with it, you'd be surprised what some of the food stylist pieces that they use to put things together. Ice cream is generally Crisco. Yum. That sounds delicious. Let's have a Crisco Sunday. Yay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know, just get that whole image out of your head and you break it down to its parts and do it your way. Don't do it the magazine way. I've done, I tried, actually executed a six course event out of the, a dinner out of the food and wine magazine one year for Easter. That's uh, very ambitious. Extremely ambitious. It was stupid. <laughs> okay, six courses for 10 people at my house. That's 60 different plates being, you know, everything plated separately with tweezers and microgreens and sauces. And each one, each one of those courses had at least six or eight components. So, but I was going to do it. Of course I did it. 
But I was so exhausted, I couldn't enjoy my friends. And I couldn't enjoy that meal, not even for a half a second. When I sat down, I was, I so not, didn't want to see food at all, ever again. And I think that's the exact feeling that listeners at home are afraid that they're going to be confronted with, that they're, they're going to put in all this effort to make this magazine beautiful meal. And then at the end of the day, they're just going to feel exhausted. They're not going to feel appreciated. But most importantly, the magic moment of interacting with your friends and family, and isn't that what these big meals are all about, that the, those interactions, the time to do that is going to be lost. One of the things that I recommend to my students, and this is something, Dorothy, that I believe from the bottom of my heart, and that is design your own life menu. From the time you go to college or you take your first job, start compiling the dishes that you're good at. Like learn to be good at 20 things and call it a day. And that's your life menu. And I think that that gives you permission to be amazing at 20 things. If you look at what chefs do, if you look at what psalms do, if you look at what pastry chefs do, they repeat and practice and practice and practice. And they have a menu at a restaurant. Why not have your own life menu. And going back to what you were saying earlier, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it very simple. Um, you can dress it up. It's easy to outsource pieces of what you're doing, especially for a Thanksgiving meal. Outsource things that are time consuming and other people can do better than you. Go to the best bakery and buy a pumpkin pie. Okay. You're never going to make it better. It, it's going to be the best pumpkin pie. Nobody will care that you didn't make it. Get the whipped cream, whip the cream at home, add a little bourbon, add a little cinnamon Ooh, to now it. now you're talking. Okay, dress it up, uh, a little maybe candied ginger on top, and voila, you have a wonderful dessert. The same goes with hors d'oeuvres and the baked goods. Really, are you going to make Parker House Rolls at home? Seriously? Do you have time for that? I don't think I've ever made Parker House rolls outside of culinary school. <laughs> no one should make Parker House rolls at home. Okay. Um, cranberry sauce you can play with. Sure. Get whole cranberry sauce. Dress it up with some orange zest. You know, again, you can, you can make things your own quite simply by outsourcing some of the other pieces. Um, and how you present it to the table is also important. Um, I like to brine a turkey, but I brine turkey parts, not the whole turkey. So speaking of turkey, mm -hmm. I would love to know what is on a Dorothy Thanksgiving menu. Hmm. What does that look like? It's very light in hors d'oeuvres because we're going to serve a big meal. So walk me through what exactly do you consider to be an hors d'oeuvre? I would uh, definitely make it something that could be pre-plated on a platter, like a cheese board with some charcuterie and nuts and maybe some fruit, something that people can nibble on um, that I can put out readily and leave. Mm. We're not passing warm puff pastry, goodies, things like that. So um, food that is not temperature sensitive. Exactly. Exactly. I like that idea. There's a lot of room temp hors d'oeuvres that are easy to execute. That's what you want to look at. You want to look at easy execution because you want to get that up and out of the way while your guests come and even a pre-made cocktail. So you're not running, you know, to make everybody a different drink or whatever. Just say, this is our, you know, spiced apple cider with a little bit of a zing. That's such a great idea. And that takes so much of the stress of having to have a bartender or like having to have 
having to buy, you know, 30 different ingredients. I love the idea of a signature drink. Do you have a signature drink that you like to make? Depends on what's striking my fancy and what's new and exciting. Um, I like flavored vodkas. Those those are great to use. And of course, in the wintertime, we're looking at citrus. Um, so I like to incorporate citrus into what I'm doing. Blood oranges are a favorite. Um Maybe something with a spiced rum, blood orange, something or other. Ooh, that sounds delicious. Maybe cranberries. I like to put cranberry in, in drinks as well. You know, kind of a, a Cape Codder uh, taste to it. So it looks festive in the glass, you know, and everybody's going to enjoy it. I use my soup tureen for cocktails, a punch bowl. So for my listeners out there that are not culinarians or restaurant professionals, a tureen is... It's like a big bowl. That has a ladle and it's meant for soup, but who puts a soup tureen on the table anymore? They don't. Nobody. It makes a great planter as well. <laughs> put put some holly in the soup tureen and it looks amazing on the table. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. So you have your signature cocktail, mm-hmm. which is liberating. Everyone can throw their arms in the air and say they don't care. It's less expensive than pouring wines Very before true. before the meal. Very so and that's another convenience item. You have to keep, you know, your costs in mind. Just imagine you're running a small little restaurant at your house. That is exactly what you're doing for the day. We make a list. We make a prep list. We make a shopping list. We go through the shopping list. We get, we gather all our ingredients so we don't have to leave the house and run to the grocery store. God, who wants to do that on the day before Thanksgiving? Nobody. So you have everything on site and then you start your prep and you can look at that prep very readily. Like, I don't stand and chop celery and onions for my dressing. They sell that at the grocery store and it has sage in it already. Throw it in the pot with some butter, saute it with some sausage. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you get too far ahead, you just gave us such a delicious morsel of planning that at the end of the day, even though your menu may be simple, but your planning should be thorough. So do you do your menu and then back out what you need for each recipe? How exactly do you approach it? First, I drop my menu. When I'm through drawing up my menu, I strike four things off of it. (laughs) Wow. Who would have thought that? (laughs) Because I think, okay, you've gone overboard. Uh, Then I look at that menu and think, okay, what do I have and what do I need? And I go through my pantry. I make sure that everything is on my shopping list that I need. So how do you know if you have 10 adults and five kids, how do you know how much you're going to put on that shopping list? Do you have a caterer's handbook kind of up there in Dorothy land? Like for me, when I plan out a big meal, I usually plan out about a pound, about a pound of, pound of protein for an adult. A pound of protein is the, the, you know, rule of, of the, the table, for lack of a better term. And then after it's cooked, of course, it's going to cook down a little bit. And so you're now at about 14 ounces or 12 ounces. Turkey's very rich. And so people don't eat lots of turkey. Let's face it, it's about the dressing. In my world, <laughs> it's about the dressing, okay? And gravy. Okay. Yeah. So those two items need to be pitch perfect. 
So about the pound is... A, a pound is, is perfect for the protein. And so in terms of choosing your protein, do you do a variety of protein? Because I know in my family, um, and this is what happened last year, I made this gorgeous heritage turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary's, of course. Lovely. Organic, air-chilled. Air-chilled. Um, Free-range. Free-range, pasture-raised. His name was Pierre. He had small children. Yes. <laughs> Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are having this conversation from Pebble Beach, California, and I own the fact that we are Californians. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. But I did make this gorgeous heritage turkey, but my aunt and my cousins really love a beef tenderloin. And I love that. I love having the variety because it allows me to make a larger piece of protein that needs less attention, but looks just as beautiful. And it gives variety to my guests. And do you do the same thing? I Thanks. always do. Um, I generally would have a turkey and prime rib or the beef tenderloin. And it, it makes it so much easier. And there's people who really don't care for turkey for one reason or another, um, or there's people who love beef. And so you've, you're now being more hospitable by giving them the choice. And you do want to do that. I like it's we'll go back to dressing. Does everybody love oysters in their dressing? Probably not. Probably not. So don't put the oysters in there. Okay. Try to make something a little more mainstream and add some touches to it. So you have your menu. Yep. Then you strike down four things. Mm -hmm. I love that part. Yes. And you have your portions for your protein. Mm -hmm. And now you're building your shopping list. Yes. And this is just like what chefs do at a restaurant. Absolutely. They have a menu. They have the amount of um, guests that they are expecting at the restaurant, and then they start building their sh your, their shopping list. And for listeners at home that are doing this for the first time, or even for the the 20th time, what are some tips or insight? What are some insights from the restaurant world and Pebble Beach Food and Wine that could help listeners at home prepare? Well, for Pebble Beach Food and Wine, I purchased nearly 20 tons of grocery items. Did you just say 20 tons? 20 tons. Yes. And they come from all over the world and they come from many different places for uh, different reasons and they're very exacting and the specs are very specific. How you build that grocery list for 20 tons of groceries is the same way you would build it at home. And that is? Divide out first your proteins, the dairy, the produce, the pantry items that you need. So when you're shopping, you don't forget anything. You go to each section and you get each of the items. Don't want to forget something. Imagine purchasing 20 tons and, you know, chef Daniel Balut comes in from New York City and I, I forgot his microgreens. No, thank you. I don't want to be that person right there. Me neither. No, no. no. <laughs> so in order to, you know, forego that, keep it focused, keep your list clean. Um, I actually color code my list because they're giant. Um, so red is meat, blue is fish, <laughs> green is produce. Yeah, it's so much easier to see like in a half a second. But wait, to be fair, like where are those portions coming from? So do you do you do your menu and then collect all your recipes and then start to break down ingredients from those recipes? Or like how do you get to your portions? I do uh, the calculation, like you said, you're, we've got a pound of proteins. Um, I usually over-calculate for side dishes. My mom taught me, always give them bread, 
and give them rice or potatoes. It'll fill in everything, um, all the little pieces that aren't there. So, you know, you want to make sure that you have enough, but you don't need enough for an army. So calculating, you know, like how, how much mashed potatoes, how many mashed potatoes does one person eat? How many do they eat? Well, I'm going to say about a half a cup to a cup, depending on if you're Uncle Joe or, <laughs> or little Bobby. Not sure. Cranberry sauce. It's a spoonful. It's a, you know, a tablespoon per person. You're saying this as a restaurant person, right? And you know that a spoonful being like a service spoonful Mm -hmm. is about three tablespoons plus, right? As a home cook, how do you start to break down like a scoop or a serving? It's kind of tough. Again, you got to know your audience. You know your family better than, than anybody else does. Like I know what my family's going to eat. Um, they're, they're carnivores, you know, they love salad, etc. but it's about the sides. I know them. Um, so I'm calculating each item. Uh, I know they're going to pour on the gravy. That's the, they're going to do it. So some people don't, and some people do my family does. So I'm going to make twice as much gravy than I would think to do because the next day I'm going to have leftovers and you know, you got to have gravy. You don't want to make gravy over again. So you have to know your audience. I couldn't agree with you more. Knowing what to make for my family in Florida is a very different proposition than knowing what to make for my family in New Jersey versus my chosen family in Los Angeles that don't eat any carbs, but I still <laughs> love them. I love you, <laughs> but it's true. And and that, that speaks to your, your experience from the restaurant business, because once you have a certain menu, that's going to attract a certain audience. And it's the same for home. If you know, you know what, like, like you said, you know, what your uncle likes or what your cousin likes and being cognizant, really paying attention to mm-hmm. what you know, is getting eaten for next year, then, you know, or as you build your life menu, you know, that at that, for that audience, the menu needs to be X. Exactly. Versus from a magazine, that's going to tell you that you need a turduncan, you know, a 40 pound turduncan. Don't do that. Please don't make a turduncan <laughs> for frankenmeat. Don't do it. <laughs> for listeners that don't know what a turduncan is, what's a turduncan? It's turkey stuffed with a duck, stuffed with a chicken. It's wrong on many levels. I don't know who came up with it. I'm sure that the duck has got a lot of fat in it. It keeps the turkey moist. I don't know why the chicken gets stuffed in there. He's probably pretty mad. I I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> then you got to take it all apart. <laughs> they, they take it apart. You roll it all up, and, and then you have turduckenstein. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, I have to confess that one year I got invited to this really bougie, shishi um, chef party for Thanksgiving. Well, it was after Thanksgiving. And I'm not going to call out who the chef is because he's been on like Top Chef and Bravo and Food Network and he's really talented. But his sister invited me to this very private post-Thanksgiving chef's party. And she said, just bring something. You know, well, I'm Puerto Rican, so I bring empanadas, right? Sounds um, good. I bring truffled cod empanadas, and I bring um, chorizo empanadas. So I show up with this big tray of empanadas, and I walk in, and and there's the chef, 
you know, presenting this turduncan. And I was like, what in God's name is that? <laughs> what is oh my goodness what is happening here and i was like hey i'm simpleton over here would you like my chorizo empanada but i will say this one of the most famous spanish chefs in the country again i'm not gonna out who this is because we're not supposed to we're not supposed to he came over to me and he goes you nailed barcelona wow and i was like Oh my God, thank you so much. I got invited to this party and, I, and they said, just bring something. So I was like, okay, I'll bring chorizo and bananas because that's what I make. And he goes, no, 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 you nailed it. Dorothy, I looked around and I was like, winner. There you go. Winner, winner, turducken, not dinner. Right. About that, you know, just bring something comment. When people ask, what can I do? Give them something to do and tell them what you need. Okay. Don't say just bring something. If you have a friend who makes bomb soup, ask that person to bring you some soup. You know, can you make, you know, a pot of soup and we'll serve that as a first course. And that would make that person feel important. It's easy to bring and carry warm up. And there you go. You got soup. If you just say bring something, gosh knows what's going to show up. So do you think it's okay to say to a guest, okay, I know that you make great soup, mm-hmm. but I would like for you to make your butternut squash soup. Do Absolutely. you think that's okay? Absolutely. And you just say, I think that would fit best with the rest of the menu. And speaking of menu, I print menus for uh, holidays. I think it adds a special touch. And in that case, I would put Aunt Susan's famous butternut squash soup with pumpkin seeds or whatever you're going to put on it. So it gives the notice to that person. It pays homage to the person that did the work. You don't take credit for anybody else's work. And it makes it more of a communal event, which is what a holiday event should be. I saw um, on television last week uh, a piece about uh, people spend 37 minutes a day with their family. Total. American families spend 37 minutes a day together. Mm -hmm. That's sad. We should be sitting down and dining together, and especially on a holiday or a celebration, whether it's Christmas or, or Kwanzaa or whatever it is, sit down and enjoy the meal and definitely enjoy your company. That's why they're there. Uh, my mom, one year, I remember we were kind of all in our like late teens, early twenties, all five of the kids. And we're sitting around the table and literally we were there for 20 minutes. And she looked around the table and said, sit down <laughs> as we were getting up to leave um, the table. She said, I spent two days making this meal and you spent 20 minutes eating it. And I would like you all to sit down. And we sat down because you have to honor the person who made the meal first of all, who spent all that time and effort, and you're supposed to be together. That's what holidays are about. So while the food is important to the table, it is not key. It's your family and your friends who are key. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's less about being magazine perfect and about getting just the the right amount of portions. It's really about sitting down and being together. And I like that idea of printing out the menu because it's a talking point. 
it's a way to like stitch the the conversation together to to respect the people that have contributed um but also in my kitchen it's a way to document what i'm going to do for next year because once i have my menu once i cook the dinner um as i'm going along i'm literally taking photographs of the process so that i catalog you know what's happening at this stage of the turkey what's happening at this stage of the potato so you have a photo catalog and next to that i write notes for next year right and i write that down on the menu i'm a very lucky girl i have possession of some of my mother's favorite cookbooks and in the margins of those cookbooks and you can tell the dog-eared pages of her 20 life menus um are these notes of what she would do different or better or how she garnished a dish or what she did to keep it hers how lovely and those are priceless now unfortunately she's no longer with us here on this earth i'm sure she's serving somebody up in heaven but um yeah those are priceless uh and they're so wise and they're just little notes on the side i love that i encourage the audience to as you're going along and you're preparing your meal like get your phone out and and document your stages because how you remember in your head what happened can be very different than what's happening in the stove when you're when you you know mixing pomme puree or when you're brining your turkey or you know when you're making your signature cocktail like how we remember it's very different than what actually happened and having those memories that must be so priceless for you it to look is. at that and Every time I fix a meal for a group, so I was making some short ribs for neighbors and friends one day and I'm going through the recipe and and doing what the recipe said, but I was tasting it, which you should always do as I was moving along and I thought, "Oh, it had a little bit of orange zest in it for acid and brightness." So I added a little bit more cuz I the the meatiness was deeper than than I thought it would be. So I added a little bit more of that and then I kind of add a little more red wine cuz who doesn't like that. Yeah, um yeah. but when I got to the end the the end product was turned out great and my neighbor down the street who can't cook, poor thing, and her husband who loved the short ribs, I mean, licked them up. She said, "Can I have the recipe?" And I thought, "If I give her the recipe from the magazine that I started with it's not going to turn out the same so i gave her the recipe but i made all these little notes on the side um of how to tweak it a little different to make it come out more like what i just did but like you said it's good to chronicle the changes that you make um i deal a lot with chefs who are sending in recipes for uh demonstration for cooking demonstrations where we produce all the food for those and have the prepped food ready to go and also the samples of that food for the Wait for the second. people. You are just giving me such an insider look at these huge events. You mean to tell me the chefs are not cooking the food right then and there? No. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it from the horse's mouth, they are not. We are my my team is producing all of that food and what we call the switch outs that take place on the stage. Is that the same as the swap outs like they do yes. at the food network mm -hmm. when like caramel reaches a certain a certain stage and then the producer will swap out a pan that has that next stage of the food is that the exactly. same thing Exactly. 
through the magic of <laughs> of television, like you see on TV, you know, Alton Brown reaches into that oven that doesn't seem to have a back on it. And voila, there it is finished. That's exactly what we're doing with uh, what's happening on those cooking demo stages. And we also produce the uh, samples for the audience. So 150 or 200 people are going to get a sample of what the chef is making. This is, you know, the same process. Um, they'll send us a recipe and the recipe is out of their book and it's made for serve six. So we're not going to serve six. We're going to serve 200. Um, so it's a different process to execute and produce that. And we want it to taste like what they envision. So our demo producer, uh, Celine Johnson, she's amazing. She tests these recipes at home with the serve six. Oh. And then she, you know, uh, calculates what is going to be needed and so forth. She sends me a list of grocery items that is needed to produce for 200. Uh, the chef will come in about 15 minutes before the demo. Are you serious? <laughs> and taste. And hopefully we got it right. Um, they're usually okay with that. But the recipe that's in the book won't be the recipe that the chef turns out at his home. So wait a second. You just gave me such a brilliant idea. Well, it, um, it's not my idea. I, you, you just inspired me. But should home cooks do a practice run of a recipe from a magazine? For Thanksgiving, there's a lot of things you can't practice run or you won't practice run because they're just not practical. But um, I would. Why not fix a chicken chicken dinner with your dressing, you know, a little, and your mashed potatoes and your gravy and so forth, just so you get the feel of it and you know that's a great idea how it's going to come out. Um, that would be Friendsgiving, like the week before. Uh, <laughs> people who like you and they don't care what you make, they're okay. Uh, you know, you can run through some of those things, of course. I think that's such a great idea, especially when it comes to drippings, right? And creating gravies because creating gravies and creating jus, you know, the, the sauce from the, the drippings from meat, um, can be tricky business. And if you, if you're not used to working with a roux, so butter flour, right? And you're not used to how fast that thickens a liquid, then it totally behooves you to test it out with, with some chicken, uh, you know, with a lower price point item. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you add one cup of liquid to two tablespoons of a roux, that you get just the right thickness for your gravy. Because some people like a thin gravy, some people like a thick gravy, and some people like their gravy with, with wine. Some people like... I like my gravy with lots of wine. No, my wine's in the glass, sorry. <laughs> you mean you like a lot of gravy with your wine? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but... Honestly, I think that that's such a really, that's a great idea is to do a test run on the difficult things that are not going to break the bank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the gravy, when you go back to the gravy, you know, that whole process of you don't want it to be lumpy. You don't want it to be, you know, too wet or too, too tight. I use wet and tight. Those are, you know, culinary words. For our friends out there that don't, un don't know what wet and tight are and they're not a pair of jeans and a teenager out of a swimming pool. <laughs> no. 
wet um, and tight means? Well, my mom would say, you know, if the gravy was too thick, she would call it tight and you need to thin it out. Um, and if it's too wet, you need to thicken it back up a little bit. So you got to find just the texture that you want. And that takes a little bit of doing and experimentation. You have to keep, you know, heat is the rest of the process involved there. You know, did you do it too fast? Did you, you know, did you make it too hot? And it, you know, reduced down too too much, you know, then turn the heat down. And, uh, you know, so it takes a little bit of adjustment to get it just right. But that's a very, very big part of these meals. Speaking of heat, do you plan out how you use your stovetop? You have to. How many burners do you have? How much space in that oven? And I've seen just disasters happen because somebody didn't plan the space in the oven. Your turkey's in there, and what else are you going to put in there? Are you going to put in the dressing? Are you going to put in your sweet potatoes? Are you going to put in, what are you going to do? And what about the top? You know, you've got, if you're going to do mashed potatoes. So this is where you've got to figure out, what am I going to outsource? What am I going to outsource so I can free up that space? And what's the timing? Timing in a kitchen is key. To get everything out together at one time is, is masterful. Uh, and the pros do it because they do it with, you know, they practice. And they do it day in and a la minute is probably one of the most sought after skills in the culinary world. And that means that last minute cooking or that plating or that reheating that you have to do to get the plate right. Um, and a la minute at home is just as important because you don't want to take your turkey out of the oven for like six hours and then y your cranberry sauce is hot. Um, at the same time that you, you plan out, you know, what pot is going to be on what burner at what time. And yes, folks, this may sound like a lot, but when you think about it, if you only have four burners and you only have one oven, it is theater to make sure that everything gets cooked and it's still warm, you know, by the time people sit down. You can also change a cooking process. You've got a microwave. Some things can go in the microwave. Uh, some things should never be in the microwave, like turkey. But you can change the cooking process. If you were thinking about doing, say, green beans and you were going to do them on the top of the stove, maybe you want to do them baked. Maybe you want to put them in the oven because you've got more space there than you have on the top or vice versa. So all these things, I, what I do is I actually pull out the pots and pans and I put them in their places. I pull out my serving dishes and all of the serving pieces so I know what's going to fit on the table. So I need to know what fits in my oven, what fits on top of my stove, what do I need to do to, do I need to cut a course? Uh, I may. I may have to not have soup. Um, because it's taking up a whole burner. So, well, we can nix the soup or we can heat the soup and put it in that darn tureen as long as there's no holly berries in it <laughs> or the punch. Um, it can go in the heated tureen and it'll hold. It's so smart. I mean, yes, we're using techniques from the restaurant world, but they translate directly for the home cook. And the more that we're advocates for the home cook, I think the more empowered 
that first, you know, that first time home cook, or even that experienced home cook who has very important guests for the first time. I think that really is helpful for them. And counting gear, counting serviceware may seem like overkill, but when you do it for the first, second time, and you see how much it puts you at ease, and it is just effortless when it works, you will agree that this is a step that you really should should follow. For listeners at home, I will post to the show notes um, a diagram that's it's popular on the internet, but a diagram of um, organizing your stovetop and your oven. Because I remember mentioning this to my sisters. I'm like, you know, the big stock pot fits here at this time. And she's like, can you just sketch it out for me? Because that would help me so much. So I will add that to show notes. That's a great idea. Um, space is, is at a premium when you're doing these larger meals. And so you really need to calculate it. I also like to put my serving pieces down on the table so I know how they fit. And invariably, somebody will show up with a floral arrangement when they walk in the door. And you go, no, there goes my table. Um, but it's, thank you, you know, for thank the you spread. so much. Yes, thank I you. I love those carnations. They're so cute. Yeah, but I can't put them on my table. Um, <laughs> I also like to try out different place settings, different types of, of actual place setting to see how they look and go with, you know, a simple color scheme. Like I, for, for Thanksgiving or Christmas, I have some Christmas dish. I have the spode Christmas dishes and those are fun for Christmas. Uh, the kids like them, they're you know, colorful and it, it makes it festive for Thanksgiving. I like to use, I have, um, some China that actually came out of a wonderful restaurant here called club 19 at the lodge at Pebble beach that is no longer there, but it was their fine dining place. And I have a set of 12 of their place settings. What a privilege. And their bone China with gold rims and, this burgundy rim is just, they're just very elegant and simple. And I like those. Um, they have some nice touches that give it a little glitter. A lot of times I'll pull out, I have a set of, of plates that came from, I did a lot of work with Meals on Wheels. And we did an event called the Culinary Classique every year. And every year they gave you a plate with your name on it and had a different design. And those are so fun because they all look different. And they're interesting. There's a great talking point. People go, oh, this is neat, you know, or you end up sitting at the the table with the masters of food and wine um, place settings signed by Jacques Pepin, which, you know, these are treasures to me. And I, but they're no good sitting in the count in the cabinet. They're here to be shared. These are the occasions where you break it all out. Yeah. That speaks to, you know, wedding China or items that you've collected along your travels. You know what? At the end of the day, take it out of the credenza, put it on the table. It's the same as people who go to Italy and they buy like precious olive oil and they keep it for like, <laughs> don't do that. They keep their olive oil for like 30 years. And they're like, oh, I got this olive oil for my wedding. And you're like, don't, no, that's fine. You can keep it. I like to be silly sometimes. You know, we're talking about celebrations, but the non-event events, where you have just friends coming over or whatever, I will take a red solo cup and put champagne in it. Okay. And conversely, I will break out these beautiful flutes and put lemonade in them. I love it. 
um, because it's fun. Just, you know, people are, are like, what's that? We're drinking champagne out of a red solo cup. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken, so you can only be yourself. And if you're, you know, a person that likes to be a character, be a character. But let your personality show on the plate, on your table, and how you greet, meet, and love your guests. I think what I'm hearing is, you know, being genuine to who you are and embracing whatever it is your life menu is, at the end of the day, that's what matters. We don't all need to have a Bon Appetit, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or a Martha Stewart Christmas, you know, or or even like what they put in, you know, on the cooking shows on Univision or Telemundo. It's just embrace what you love do the do the dishes that you're really good at and if it's simple great fine outsource the other stuff and speaking of outsourcing other stuff and planning and planning the dinner do you worry about food being in that like that danger zone that 4140 as a professional like can you talk absolutely. to me about that absolutely so let's talk about what exactly is the danger zone uh it's around 140 and and especially with poultry and bone-in poultry, you need to be so careful. Your dressing as well, you know, if it's cooling to a certain, down to the certain temperature and it's got protein in it, you've got to be very careful. You will poison people. You will make everyone sick. And I don't think anybody's going to have fun uh, with that idea. So you need to be cognizant of that. I have digital read thermometers that I utilize, you know, religiously religiously and holding temperatures are, are very, very important. Um, what do you mean by holding temperature? Well, once you cook something and then you pull it out of the oven and you're holding it until it's ready to hit the table, which should be pretty soon. You should, you would hope, but you know, you let your Turkey stand and let it sit for quite a bit of time before you start to to dismember it. That's a terrible word, isn't it? I feel like Dexter in the kill room with the turkey. We go back to turducken. Uh, never mind. But the temperature of of the protein is is important um, to keep at a proper proper holding temperature so it doesn't create bacteria. When it starts creating bacteria, you, you can definitely make people ill quite readily. And there are certain thresholds uh, for chicken. There are thresholds for beef. There are thresholds for pork. And there are thresholds for turkey. And um, you can look at the front cover of most cookbooks. Google it. Google it. Um, I will also include that in the show notes because that's something that I think listeners would appreciate having to put on their refrigerator um, as a reference piece. And it's easy to find, but I, I'll be more than happy to be of service and uh, include that in that the would, show notes. That'll be very helpful to a lot of people. And I, I think there are some people that are really painfully unaware, painfully unaware. And so that that is a very important piece to this this celebration meal. So we've talked about the menu. We've talked about portion planning. We've talked about shopping planning. Now I want to talk a little bit about that sacred space. When we sit down to eat, I know what I covet and it's the one-on-one conversations. When you're planning a meal, how do you protect 
that sacred space. Like, do you ask people to put their phones away? Yes. Really? Some people, unless you're a brain surgeon or an obstetrician or you're holding the nuclear codes, um, you're not that important. And whatever it is can wait. I have nieces that are teenagers and, and young adults, and they live by their phones. They're not allowed on our tables uh, at home. And thankfully, their parents have also made that a, a deal. Just turn them to stun, you know, set it to the stun part. So it just jiggles in your pocket if you must, but it can wait. The people in front of you are important. They're far more important. They travel to come and see you. They've got dressed up to come and see you. They're excited to come and see you. They're in your home. And so they too should be very polite and, you know, put the phone down, please. Again, unless you're very, very important to the world, which pretty much I'm not, uh, unless it's game day at Pebble Beach Food and Wine, and then the phone's on and that's all there is. Other than that, I, yeah, I don't like the phones at the table. And how do you protect that space? Plan who's sitting next to who. Know your audience. Um, maybe Uncle Jimmy has a little spat with somebody going on with somebody else at the table. And so he doesn't sit next to that person. You sit them across the table or you want people that who have like-minded ideas to sit close to one another. A lot of times I'll plant myself where I'm most able to get up and move to the kitchen. And I tell people, you know, that's, I'll put place cards. So we have assigned seats. Sometimes you don't want them to have a science seat. Just let them fall where they're going to fall. You know your audience better. To sit and chat and not just eat and leave. It's priceless. We're dining. We're not eating. We're dining. That that time that you're sitting around the table. I've had people sit at my dining room table for hours. And I just think the best conversations take place. They're at ease. There's things to nibble on. There's what about kids? Like, do you, kids? do you have the kids sit with the adults? Yes. Do you, Really? Yes. Where do they learn? Where, I mean, if they're toddlers, if they're three or four or five, somewhere in there, you know, maybe there's a kid's table, depending. But honestly, I would like them to sit at the table so they learn how to talk to people, um, what eating is about or dining is supposed to be, as opposed to eating in front of the television or swap, you know, just taking down a sandwich and being done with it. You want them to learn to be adults and interact. I'm very, very proud that my five nieces all have great table manners. They know how to behave in a restaurant. Uh, they know how to behave at the table at home. Um, sometimes they don't always do that, but you know, they're kids, um, but they know the right way. My mom used to tell me someday you might dine with the queen of England, Dorothy. So you have to sit up, your napkin goes in your lap, you know, and she went through all of the utensils and how the order to use them and so forth. Um, and I thought, mom, I'm never going to dine with the queen of England. Okay. But okay. I'm listening. I had the opportunity to be in Paris and I was working with a fine dining restaurant here in, in uh, Pacific Grove called the old bathhouse. And we bought a lot of champagne. Uh, one of the champagne houses, uh, in the Champagne district, there was a Count de Dompierre. The Count de Dompierre was a magnificent character, and he sent a car into Paris to pick me up and take me to his chateau uh, for lunch. For lunch, 
Okay. So we show up to this 16th century chateau that's been in his family for generations. He shows me his garage full of Delahaye, beautiful antique cars. And then, For people that don't know what Delahaye is, what is Delahaye? It's a gorgeous car with sweeping fender walls. It's a French vehicle that he collects. And the vehicles that he had, the four that he had in his garage, I would venture a guess they were worth a million dollars. And they were just stunning, each one. And he drives them. I mean, he takes them out and drives them around. So did you have your mom in the back of your head as you're yes. going through this experience? Well, not until I got to the dining room. I got to the dining room and I sat at the table and he had his chef come in to prepare the uh, lunch for himself, the count, the countess, myself, and one other person. It's a hard life, people. It's a hard life. I saw more hardware on <laughs> and tools on that table I thought, oh my God, she was right. Oh no. I saw things I, I, I knew they existed, but um, knife rests, bullion spoons, cheese tools. There was at least 16 going from the left to the right and building up from the plate into the table. And I thought, this is lunch. <laughs> And lunch was quite simple and well turned out. And, and there was like three or four courses, but there were little pieces to it that came. Um, the shellfish, the bouillon, you know, you need the bouillon spoon that was flat and had a notch. And so I was sitting there and I looked at the count at one point and he said, I just do whatever she does over there. With, whatever the countess picks up, we do that. <laughs> and I said, great. Okay, my mom warned me of this that this might happen. And so now I'm, I'm here in practice. So off we went. Uh, and it was spectacular because wow. we had all of these service pieces that were just perfect and built beautifully for what they were. You may never experience that and you don't need that at your celebration table. At the same time, it is kind of fun to have, you know, something different. You really are the exception to the rule in this industry, Dorothy. You are, you're a treasure. You, you really are a treasure. And I want to give the audience a peek into the things that make you happy. And I want to segue to a portion of the show that I really like because I get to get in your mind and share with the audience, you know, the things that, that you love. Um, I want to ask you three questions. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, what are you drinking? And it doesn't need to be right this second, or and it doesn't need to be alcoholic either. Okay. Um, what's making you happy in the culinary world or the event planning world? Mm -hmm. And what is your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? So let's start with what are you drinking? I admit that I love Fresca. <laughs> I know. I know. I know, but it still exists and it's really, really good. It's tart, it's refreshing. Fresca is my go-to uh, when it comes to if I want something, you know, to quench my thirst. Um, rosé, because it's light and um, goes along with a lot of different foods and it's pretty it's like a California rosé, a Bendol rosé. Um, I was drinking Miraval, nice. uh, which, you know, it's just a pretty little wine and it's not necessarily expensive or anything like that. And you can quaff it. I love the word quaff. What is quaff? 
quaff is where you can drink it without care, I think. You can just sip it and it's delicious. That is my new word. Quaff. I thought quaff with my my joisy accent. I thought quaff was like what you do with your, your hair. hair. Yeah. No, it's it's just drinkable. Um so those are the two things I, I enjoy imbibing with. Okay. And what is making you happy in the culinary world or in, in the world of Pebble Beach and LA food and wine? What makes me happiest is that I see a lot of young women who are brave and courageous and they are doing great things in the culinary world and they are not sitting back on their heels and letting other people run over them. This makes me happy. I did not have mentors when I was in their position. There were no mentors. Um, like I said, the dinosaurs were there. There were some female ones, but um, they're hard to tell. And so it makes me happy to see uh, the balance of the power between the men and the women all in one kitchen or all in one organization. It really balances a kitchen to have both genders there. And that's important to me. I, I I really enjoy that. And finally, what is your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? I'm known for soup. Oh, really? Yes. Um, I think if I'm invited to somebody's home for a meal, I think there's two things actually, soup or something for breakfast. Because if somebody spent a lot of time making dinner for you and so forth, the next morning, wouldn't it be nice if there was some nice little baked goods or maybe a quiche or um, a strata, something along that line that they could just heat up and have available. Everybody brings wine. That's nice. It's flowers. You know, people show up to your door with flowers in the middle of you trying to make dinner and you have to stop what you're doing and put them in a vase. And so, so that's not the answer. Um, something comforting, maybe an eye mask or, or something along that line, oh, I want one. S- little spa thing going on. Yeah, because it's just comforting. I, I, I look for those items. Those are great answers. Thank you so much for sharing a part of, of your uniqueness. And I'd be curious to know, do you have parting words of wisdom or encouragement for, you know, the home cook that's, that's at home or even like, you know, the the person that's going to have their friend family over for the first time. Do you have um, parting words of encouragement or insight? Yes. Make a list, keep it simple and do it from your heart. Do it with love and it should be pleasurable. Do it with pleasure because you're feeding people. It's very important in this world that we all feed one another, whether it's love or food or whatever it is that you're feeding them, fellowship, friendship, feed them from your heart. Dorothy, thank you so very much for sharing so much time with me today, for opening up the doors to your gorgeous home here in Pebble Beach. I feel like a kid in a candy shop, spending so much time with somebody who is, I, you know, I feel kind of silly calling you the chef whisperer, but um, that just says so much about your uniqueness, your how special you are to a lot of people, and the wealth of knowledge that you have going on in that body of yours. So thank you so much. Thank you, Nikki. It's been a pleasure. And it's been a pleasure having you at my dining room table. 
Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. I, I feel like every time I speak with Dorothy, I, I learned something new. So hopefully you're walking away with some goodies to help you this holiday season. If you'd like to learn more about Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival, which is April 16th through the 19th, 2020 in Pebble Beach, California, visit their website, pbfw.com. That's pbfw.com. You can also find Dorothy on Facebook at Dorothy Maris, and that's M-A-R-A-S. And of course, please let me know if pieces of advice from this episode were helpful. Um, you know, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All my handles are Kitchen Scene Investigator. And please leave me a review on iTunes or Google or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps the show get discovered. I love getting your constructive feedback. And finally, if there's a topic you really want me to cover, just shoot me a message on the website and uh, we'll try to bring it to life. All right, loves. Happy entertaining. Bye.